the orderly, civilized behavior of most ordinary people in Britain throughout the war, but particularly in the darkest hours, was extraordinary? People queued, sometimes for up to an hour, or more, but nobody tried to crash in. Everyone took their turn, if not happily, then willingly. Bus and train queues, taxi queues, queues for foods of all descriptions, picture house queues, queues at every conceivable government office, for whatever advice, help or service one required, queues were a part of life during the war. They were, in short, unavoidable. The orderly method, of taking one's turn, remained for many years after the war. Once, this sort of correct behavior had been considered, a sign of breeding and good manners. If two people were gathered, for the same thing, service, transport or commodity, they would start a queue, with the first arrival in front. This behavior was most noticeable at bus stops where, during the war, superb discipline was maintained. Even though, as commonly happened, the bus was crowded and could hold far fewer passengers than were waiting. The bus conductor s called out, how many, s he would take. The requisite number boarded, while the remainder waited for the next, or the next, or the next buses. They waited, in order of arrival, in an orderly queue. That the next bus might be 20 minutes away, making no difference to their equanimity. It was, most people thought, the thing to do. Many, today, would think this is ridiculous. Today, it seems, the survival of the fittest, or the strongest, appears to be the rule. Heaven help the little old ladies, or the infirm. When I did the shopping, I was never pushed out of the way, while an adult shopped out of their turn. I was treated, as anyone else. It was the way things were done and people understood this. Today, I often have to intercede, when young children are ignored in places of business. All too often, a child is left standing, while a selfish adult jumps ahead, thinking, I suppose, that they are, somehow, superior. It is true I was a large lad, but I am confident this wasn't the reason I was afforded my rights. Life, generally, was good during the war. Things and incidents might not have been, but living with one's neighbor was. It most certainly was. People were polite and friendly. Complete strangers were accepted. Stranger were spoken to, as old friends. People would help another person, if that person had a problem, and I doubt that too many people felt alone, during the war. It might appear, that this is an exaggeration, but it truly isn't. If I had the choice of living, with either the typical citizens of today or those wartime citizens, there is no doubting where I would choose to live. In those far-off days, the polite, courteous and respectful people, were said to have manners. Most people, then, whatever their station in life, had manners. I doubt that many people, today, have even heard of the word, let alone, possess them. Mention of bus stops, reminds me of something. Sometime, I think it must have been about 1942 but am not at all certain, London Transport put an opaque, sticky, cloth-like covering over the glass windows of all their trains and buses. This, of course, was to prevent splintering glass from flying everywhere, in the event of bomb blasts. Small holes were left, one in each window, to enable people to learn of their location, if they could get access to the window. Frankly, while the stuff was probably excellent for its purpose, it was a pain in the butt for passengers. I'm not saying that anyone, even I, wanted it removed during the dangerous periods. However, when the end of the war was within sight, it was so good to board a bus or underground train without this stuff on the windows. The feeling of freedom was, without argument, similar to being let out of prison, or school, and being allowed to run free in the country. The joy, those clear dash and clean, for a short while, windows gave to passengers, had to be experienced, to be understood. At the time of the removal, which was done over many months, there was much eager anticipation at the bus stops. Would the bus have clear glass, or wouldn't it? 
for people who might read this and wonder, about the veracity of the statements. Imagine yourself traveling on a bus, or train, and having absolutely no view outside. It was also most pleasing, to have placed names back on stations, signposts, milestones, and elsewhere, although this had been done, to some small degree, after the threat of the German invasion had passed. Other small things are remembered, although their place in time may not, always, be. For example, one day the police no longer carried their gas masks and steel helmets, while on duty. I suspect this varied, from force to force, but it was a small landmark of the war. Likewise was the time when, suddenly, soldiers seemed no longer to be carrying their rifles, while on leave. I believe they were obliged to do this, around the time when the threat of an invasion was greatest. From September 1944, blackout regulations were no longer rigorously enforced. It was wonderful not to fuss and fret, over complying with these regulations. Regulations which meant, the relevant house lights had to be turned off, before one exited, or entered, the house at night. Before answering the door at night, one had to douse the lights that might, otherwise, pour outside. A household pet, disturbing the curtains, could bring the wrath of the local air raid warden down upon your neck, or, even, a summons. From these few examples, perhaps, it can be seen how awkward the blackout was. It was late in 1944 or early 1945, I think, when we saw workmen demolishing all of the emergency water supply, EWS, reservoirs. A large number of these had been constructed, on bomb sites and other vacant ground. They came in many, varied sizes. Essentially, they provided a ready supply of water, for emergency use by the hard-pressed fire brigades. All too often in the Blitz, and the other bombing raids on British cities, bombs destroyed water mains, and, with them, the water supply to the many fire hydrants. In London, the Thames could be used in a small number of cases. Fireboats were used extensively, for fighting fires involving property at the water's edge, and in suitable circumstances. These circumstances were, unfortunately, relatively few and far between. When fireboats were unsuitable, however, fighting fires with water from the tidal river produced problems. It was next to impossible, to get water across the deep, slimy mud flats that are present in much of central London, with the Thames at low tide. The copious supplies, contained in the EWS reservoirs, proved very efficacious during the later bombing, including the V-weapon attacks. Even so, the demolition of these reservoirs was a very welcome sight. Not in itself, of course, but by its implication that the threat of bombing was definitely over. Later still, for everyone, the big moment came when some, usually insignificant, item of food, in excess of the ration, was obtained. This moment, for many, was completely unexpected. The shopkeeper, one day, just asked if you would like more. It didn't amount to much, very often. An ounce here, an ounce there, but it made the person's day. At the end of the war and on into the peace, this was quite usual, but not during the active part of the war, say, before March of 1945. Thanks to a socialistic desire to control citizens, rationing remained a part of life in Britain until the 1950s. Ironically, bread, which had never been rationed during the war, was rationed, under the socialists, after the war. For so many people, in so many ways and so many things, the war didn't end suddenly. It slowly passed, from being part of life. The actual death and killing stopped, at the stroke of a clock, of course. At the same time, the very real threat of death, also passed. It has always been so, for the armed services. World War II was, probably, the first war in which these threats applied, largely, to many civilians. More civilians, in truth, than servicemen. To say the civilians of Dresden, Berlin, Hamburg, London, Liverpool, and many other cities, 
were not as exposed to the dangers of war, as many in the armed forces, is to ignore the facts. Surely, the death toll speaks on the side of this being the truth. Some small anomalies, in this assertion, certainly exist. Generally, however, I feel it is a fair and accurate statement of fact. However, death and destruction aren't what the war was about to the countless civilians, in Britain not exposed to bombing or shelling. For, virtually, everyone in the country, war brought with it many restrictions upon one's life and living. Stringent restrictions, petty restrictions, and everything in between. Under the emergency orders for the defense of the realm, virtually everything was covered. These restrictions impinged, on everything one did. It is impossible to convey the full effect, these countless rules, restrictions, regulations, orders, laws, edicts, and prohibitions had on people. It didn't matter that so many of the things, we weren't allowed to do, were seldom done anyway. Just the feeling they couldn't be done, was most oppressive. Huge numbers of these orders, passed under the defense of the realm regulations, have long been forgotten. Most would appear foolish today. Some appeared foolish at the time. Some, didn't. Bells couldn't be rung. This included handbells and, to some ultra-conscientious civil defense members, it included bicycle bells. Whistles couldn't be blown. These two restrictions weren't, officially, lifted until January of 1945. Handbells and whistles were to be the official signal of a gas attack, church bells were forbidden, the signal for invasion. A special dispensation was granted, to celebrate the 8th Army's great victory at El Alamein. For this victory, church bells pealed throughout the land on Sunday May 16, 1943. It might sound unlikely, but it's nevertheless true, hearing, long silent, church bells cheered most of the population, considerably. Open fires outdoors were forbidden and fireworks outlawed for the duration. It was obligatory to dismantle motor vehicles left unattended and, similarly, all motor boats on inland waterways. Rescinded in August 1944, camping was banned within 10 miles of the coast in Britain. This was, mostly, rescinded in September 1944. Although, later, a huge area was, once again, covered by another prohibition order, on the subject of controls, we mustn't overlook that even the utility clothing was manufactured under the strictest of rules and regulations. It was prohibited to manufacture double-breasted coats or jackets. Trouser turn-ups, were banned. The length of shirts and pajamas, were shortened, by decree, while the same regulations determined, controlled and limited the number of pockets, and the number of buttons, any garment could have. Utility clothing was, of course, also rationed. There was no choice. Prices were controlled. The movement of animals was controlled. A large number of businesses were burdened, by boundless bureaucratic edicts and inspections. Although everyone got used to it, eventually, it seemed that government officials controlled every aspect of one's life. One felt, very often, as though one had to seek approval, in triplicate, to go to bed at night. Countless and long-forgotten, restrictions were in force. Many, at their inception, the work of overzealous bureaucratic officials. Although, it must be admitted, many of the various restrictions did more to help, keep the country running smoothly and effectively, than hinder, this objective. The compulsory drills, along with the training, of the Home Guard were both suspended in September and the Home Guard was, finally, disbanded in November 1944. To show appreciation for this body of men, a huge parade was held on December 3, 1944 in Hyde Park. The King, along with Queen Elizabeth and the two princesses was present at this, well-attended, parade. In addition, the King spoke that night in honor of the Home Guard personnel. Initially, the Home Guard was a joke. Untrained and without weapons, made up of callow youths and old men, it was the object of ridicule, sadly. 
When this body was disbanded, it was a proud, well-disciplined and efficient force. Jokes continued to be made, at the home guard's expense, but they were jokes born of respect, and, not a little, gratitude. On Monday 9th of October, 1944, the removal of direction signs order was revoked. This, officially, allowed signposts and other location signs to be restored. On Tuesday October 10, 1944, some of the restrictions placed on newspapers, were removed, or amended. From this date, newspapers were allowed to publish details of whether after only two days delay, it had been ten days. Still, however, flood and snow could not be mentioned, in weather reports, until five days had elapsed. In November 1944, there was another ammunition explosion. Little known about and seldom reported, these ammunition explosions were not rare. The November 1944 incident was, perhaps, the worst. A huge explosion occurred, in an underground ammunition storage facility, at Burton-on-Trent. A crater, 300 yards wide, was created. 70 people were killed, along with hundreds of cattle. Underground explosions devastated several square miles of the Staffordshire countryside. Other serious explosions, became common knowledge in the years following the war. Even in the depths of the countryside, people lived with death below them, or close at hand. In a country that used millions of matches, daily, to light fires, ignite gas cookers, light cigarettes and pipes, light candles, light gaslights, the virtual disappearance of matches, from the shop shelves, was a catastrophe. Not too many people had lighters and, even if they did, those required a fuel that was almost impossible to obtain. The situation became so bad, the government had to step in. Plastic lighters were produced under a government order and fuel restrictions lightened. The price of these lighters was fixed at 6-6D, 32P, quite expensive, for the times. Although matches, perhaps, was the subject of the most far-reaching of the lesser calamities, hundreds of other, commonly used, commodities and objects also became scarce, or unobtainable. Ash has been mentioned, furniture and clothing were made by government decrees and orders. Only that furniture, or that, clothing was available in the stores. It was pretty basic stuff. Clothes designers and furniture designers had to have their designs approved by a bureaucratic official. I'm not trying to imply that all these restrictions were not needed. Many, of the restrictions, were. I'm only trying to give the reader a good idea of how life was, during the war. Too many people, unaffected by the war, have very strange ideas of what went on. Besides the multitudinous and pervasive restrictions, war was about being unable to purchase toilet paper, being unable to find a shop that has any cigarettes. Then, after a long tiring search, finding a shop with cigarettes, only to have the tobacconist say he's selling to regular customers, only. War was finding no beer, of any description available, at your local pub. War was about being kept awake, night after night, but still having to go to work for 10 or 12 hours every day. War was finding out, you have to queue for an hour, to obtain a permit to rebuild your damaged home. War was finding out, that the permit has to be signed by person in another department, and this will require another long wait in a queue. War was about, then, finding out that, unless the work can be carried out within six weeks, you have to reapply for the original permit and go through the whole rigmarole again. War was about then going to a number of contractors, each of whom tell you that they can't start work for a couple of months. War was about queuing, for half an hour at the butcher's, to find he has just sold the last cut off the last carcass he had. The butcher tells you, that no more meat is expected for a few days. War was about going to the grocer, because the larder is bare of everything except bread. Then, after a lengthy time queuing, finding out the grocer has no butter, margarine or sugar. He has tinned turnips, in abundance. War was about, finding that the train slash buses are cancelled. 
War was about being unable to buy coal for the fire, in the depth of winter, in a home with no other form of heating. War was about finding the electricity goes off, suddenly, and on a regular basis. War was about finding there's no gas for cooking and, of course, the electricity is off. War was about searching long and diligently, and then discovering you can't find, let alone purchase, an item you desperately need. An item, very often, as common as a battery for a torch, a candle, required to give light in the shelter, a tap washer or a box of matches, to light the gas cooker. Maybe, the item it was impossible to find was a pair of shoes, a battery for the wireless, over 20% of wireless sets were dependent on batteries of some sort. Not the small types, of today, but larger ones. Accumulator batteries were still in common use, particularly in rural areas, late in the war, often the item found unobtainable would be brakes, or any other part, for the bicycle, or, even, suitable nails for a repair that required doing. War was about being unable to find, purchase or use, countless unremembered things which we tend to take for granted in times of peace, things that are always available. War was about making a main meal of dry bread, spread with meat dripping. War was about not being able to visit friends, because they live the wrong side of a prohibition order. War was about seeing mobile laundries, run by the woman's voluntary service, mainly, in a street where, normally, doing the family wash was not a problem. War was about not only seeing these mobile laundries, but being glad to use them, along with one's friends and neighbors who, also, had been bombed out. War was about coming to rely, for a short while, on mobile tea wagons, also run by the WVS. Probably, the most persistent emotion felt during the course of the war, was hunger. Not, starving hunger, at least not for the population of the UK, dash but, nevertheless, genuine hunger. Hunger for a food, or delicacy, that was unavailable. Unavailable, due to being temporarily out of stock, or sold out. Unavailable, due to it having been consumed, already, during the rationing period. Unavailable, due to importing restrictions. Although many rural folk did not too badly, most urban residents were severely restricted to their rations, depending, of course, on availability. For most citizens with food, during the war, it was always a matter of decisions and choice. Only extremely rarely, was it possible to link desire for a particular food or delicacy, with the enjoyment of it. All too often, one had to eat what was available, not what one fancied. Was that week's egg going to be scrambled, boiled, poached, or used in cooking? Would it be too wasteful, to put the egg with the rasher of bacon and blow it all on one meal? Would the weekly sweet ration be consumed in one evening, which, at two ounces, could easily be done, or would it be eked out to cover a longer period? Decisions. 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 Then, invariably, recriminations and second-guessing, all over a measly portion of food. Often, over some relatively unappetizing food, at that. This, was the norm, for over five years. It is impossible to portray, accurately, the feeling of impotence, most people felt, over one of the most basic of human desires, eating. In many areas of life and living, war, total war, affects all, equally. In matters of bombing and bombardment, total war affects, all those living within the area of risk, equally. Total war is no respecter of the elderly, or, of youth. Total war is no respecter of class or privilege, of the rich or the poor, of a male or a female, of the leaders or the led, or of the sick or the healthy. World War II for most civilians in Britain, as I might have already said, was hell. Not the biblical hell of fire and brimstone, although profound fear and dire dread of harm, both personal and for loved ones, was a part of it, very often. No, it was the hell, of having loved ones away from home. It was the hell, of being constantly concerned over loved ones' safety and their well-being. 
It was the hell, of very great and lasting inconveniences, petty restrictions, understandable prohibitions and severe, never-ending shortages. It was the hell of never being able to plan dash sometimes, not even for an hour ahead. Finally, it was the hell of having the constant concern that, however good, or bad, the situation appeared, things could get decidedly worse. Bibliography The BBC at War 1939-45 Tom Hickman The World Almanac of World War II Edited by Brigadier Peter Young The World Almanac 1940 and 1995 editions Whitaker's Almanac 1939 edition The Oxford Companion to World War II General Editor I.C.B. Deer The Second Great War A Standard History Edited by Sir John Hammerton